The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. Now you could say all that, or you could just call this show About Race. In the studio from Los Angeles, I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black. And with me today from the Panoply Studios in New York are my wonderful co-hosts, Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina. What's up, Raquel? What up? What up, Baratunde? What's up, Tanner? What's up, Earthlings and others? I'm looking forward to this combo. And we are looking forward to you as well. And uh, the Tanner she speaks of is Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Good day, Tanner. Good day to you, sir. Here's what we have in store for today's discussion. Uh, Because it's the premiere episode of About Race, we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the spectacular failure of Starbucks' attempt at racial conversation, this Race Together campaign promoted by its CEO, Howard Schultz. It seemed that everyone loved to hate it, and now that the shitstorm of mockery and ridicule has passed, we're going to look back at how it failed and why. Uh, the next story we'll get to is Three Miles. This story recently aired by This American Life. It's about two schools in the Bronx that are mere three miles apart but super different. One is a struggling public school, predominantly made up of low-income students of color. The other, a very wealthy, very white school with a $43,000 a year tuition. If you haven't heard it yet, you should. We're going to discuss what happens when students from one school encounter students from the other. Spoiler alert, it's not all good. And then an essay from Stereo Williams in the Daily Beast about Common, Pharrell, and the quote-unquote new black. Common was recently on The Daily Show promoting his new film and made some comments that reminded us of what Pharrell and raven Simone have also said recently about black identity and to some degree their escape from the trials and tribulations of it. So we're going to dive into those essays' arguments and give you an update on the state of blackness in 2015. Finally, because listening to our first episode on Loop probably isn't a realistic option for y'all, we'll wrap things up with our tips and recommendations in a segment we like to call Yo, Check This Out. But before checking all that out, I want to check back in with my co-hosts. Raquel, what's what's happening in your life, in your world? How, How are you doing this lovely day? There's so much to talk about. I mean, we could have done like a three-hour, four-hour show today. Yeah, absolutely. By now, everybody's heard about the Jay Smooth and Nancy, uh, I don't know, Giles? Is that how you pronounce her name? Giles, Giles. Giles, Giles, Giles yeah. Giles, whatever. In uh, All In with Chris Hayes. Have you, Did you see that segment? Yes. I think everyone loved that Oh, segment. my God. That yeah. really irked me, man. I mean, I loved it, but <laughs> it really irked me. And you're referring to her assumption that Jay Smooth, uh, who's quite black, was not black at all. She basically accused him of putting on like a hip hop air and tried to call him out for being inauthentic and uh, had the awkward truth slapped in her face where he's like, well, I sound black because I am black. black. But the funny funny thing is, is that number one, it's kind of ironic to see her talking about anybody co-opting hip hop culture. Because really at its root, hip hop wasn't started only by black American, you know, young people. It was started by people from all different kind of backgrounds, whether it's white, black, 
some Asians, Jews, yeah. all kind of people. And hip hop is not only rap music, it's a culture that encompasses dancing and graffiti art and all kind of other things. And it was just kind of like reductive to kind of take the conversation to, you know, that kind of like hippity hop kind of like ignorance. And also for somebody that educated to see blackness or see diasporic people in a way where they only come in one package is so 1863. <laughs> yeah, no, you know? I, I agree. It's, it's so uh, passe. I mean, it's not... It's not surprising for any cable news outlet to kind of reduce complexity and get something wrong that way, but that was especially awkward to watch because it was like basically black-on-black crime. What's been popping through your intelligent brain, Mr. Colby? What popped through my brain and then thankfully popped right back out again uh, was the (laughs) George Zimmerman video where he compared himself to Anne Frank. Have we seen this? I sat through 10 minutes before I had to turn it off, but it is... It's beyond Wait, it's more than 10 minutes. Oh, it's like 12 minutes long. Oh, I could have listened to the whole 12 minutes. But what's astonishing yeah. is that like even, uh, you know, Wilson, the guy in Ferguson, when they put the questions like, do you wish it had happened differently? Of course, the obvious is, well, of course, I regret that it happened the way it happened, but I did what I had to do. And I, you know, I blah, blah, blah. That's the standard answer. Zimmerman couldn't even take himself that far to say that he regretted that it happened. Basically, the gist of it was, the psychopathic gist of it was that God has a plan and I would be a hypocrite if I interfered with what God had wanted to happen that night. So basically, God oh, wanted him to kill Trayvon wow. Martin. God also wanted him to like uh, domestically abuse his girlfriend yeah, after that. And God apparently. wanted him to just bug the fuck out, I guess. Right. So... <laughs> That's really God bold to put all that on God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't have the ability to click on anything with George Zimmerman in the headline anymore. Yeah, so me either. It came I across my I Facebook it was feed, too good. and I was like, no, no, I, I will resist the, the urge. And I just moved on and, and had a happier life. <laughs> Before we get started, for those interested in being part of our national conversation about conversations about race, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Show About Race or on the open internet at showaboutrace.com. We want to hear what you're thinking about, what's bothering you, what's inspiring you, how you think this conversation could be better, presumably with your voice added to it. Uh, And now I'm going to hand it over to Tanner, who's going to bring us into our first fun story. Okay, Starbucks. So, (laughs) as the whole... (laughs) (laughs) So elegant. Sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. That was amazing. Starbucks. Should I do a more elegant intro? No, um, I think no, that's I great. I think it was perfect. So let's just do okay. it. No, man. that was dope. <laughs> All right. So, Starbucks. As everyone knows, the company recently launched their Race Together campaign, which was meant to allegedly get people together to talk about race over coffee at Starbucks. CEO Howard Schultz said he was inspired by last year's events in Ferguson to use his company's, quote, national footprint and scale for good. Those are his words. And after a lot of internal events talking about race within the company last year that were allegedly quite productive and cathartic, they decided to take this into a national campaign over the internal objections of many of their store managers who, per an internal memo, really didn't want to do it. And of course, as we've now seen, the whole thing was a shit show start to finish. And when we first brought up discussing it here, I was like, by the time we go to tape, you know, all the obvious jokes are going to be made, all the points are going to be made, and this is going to be dead and over and in the ground, and that is exactly what's happened. We got 48 hours of Twitter hashtag jokes about everyone's new favorite Starbucks drinks. What my, was your favorite one? My personal favorite was latte from a Birmingham jail. 
And of course, all the obvious points were made in the the hot take essays the next day that the you know hurried exchanges with baristas during rush hour were a stupid way to talk about race. This was imposing emotional labor on low wage workers. It did nothing to address real structural economic issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also, apparently, none of the baristas actually did it anyway. It was sort of like an optional. <laughs> it was like an optional assignment to do after school, and like nobody wants to do it, and nobody did it, and it just extra credit. Died. Yeah, it was extra credit. So they've now cut the barista engagement part of the campaign, and now it's just going to be sort of a general awareness campaign, which means it will be even more meaningless than it was before. The absurdity of this particular campaign has been gone over so thoroughly that I don't think we need to even touch it here. But the real issue for me that I saw coming out of this is that beyond paying living wages and complying with basic labor laws and the things that you, you know, companies should do. What is the role of corporations in this arena of social justice and social change? Why did Howard Schultz even feel that this responsibility was incumbent upon him? Was it even a good idea to begin with? Should any corporation be doing this sort of thing? I know what I think about that, but I'm going to turn over to you see what do you guys think. Brad You know, as people of color, we deal with race all the time. We're always having racial conversations amongst ourselves and with white America the fact that Howard Schultz was willing to impose a racial conversation heavily on white America through their caffeine intake, that's kind of gangster. Like, it didn't work, clearly. But I do love that people were potentially made uncomfortable in a place that they didn't expect it. Because that's how racism lands. That's how it lands for people who are on the receiving end of it. We don't get to choose the forum. We don't get to opt in to some kind of open mic discussion with prepared questions and a moderator. It just hits you with a police baton or with a discriminatory act in in an establishment or with some expectations set too low or too high, depending on the room that you're in. So Mm -hmm. I think there's something kind of powerful about his willingness to interrupt the workflow of getting your caffeine with the awkwardness of racial conversation. And I respect the gangsterism of that to put that especially on white people. But, you know, I mean, he did he did grow up in the Bayview projects in Canarsie. So, you know, he did have some balls to go left and everybody else is going right. So, you know, I'm not surprised. And he's definitely not the first CEO to promote his own agenda. I mean, look at Sheryl Sandberg. She pushes rightfully so uh, gender equality. So but the difference where he totally fucked up was mandating. He came off like a lord of race war mandating his employees and some people are not equipped with the vocabulary even in the most engaging people may not be equipped to talk about race and engage people about race when they're like making your malcolm expresso you know Mm -hmm. what i mean i read that on i read that on twitter a quick correction the program was optional the program was optional yeah so you didn't have to write race together on a cup they did send instructions to all the stores they told you how to do it they were encouraging of it and you could argue that you know, optional meant you should do it because the CEO wants you to do it. Yeah. Like some kind of yeah. you know, corporate or peer pressure, but it wasn't technically a mandatory program. I mean, when I see a CEO kind of pushing it on his product yeah. and being very vocal about it, I think it's kind of like an optional, but, you know, you got to kind of play right. the game. I mean, everyone's you know what supposed I mean? to play the game. And, but supposed to play the game. I'm, I went to six different Starbucks, and actually yeah. five times out of the six, it was empty. There was nothing going on. And twice like I no even... customers? There were like almost no customers. The line wasn't long. And there were times maybe where... they were trying to avoid a conversation about race and they went to another coffee shop? I don't know. I mean, I even looked at a barista that I actually am friendly with, like looking at it like, oh, so what's up? So what's new? So what are you talking about? So what's going... And um, she just... Everybody looked really uncomfortable and yeah. kind of scared. Yeah, it was bad. And, you know, you would get the same thing. It's kind thing. of fucked up, man, to make your, you know... 
It would be yeah. fucked up. And it would also be fucked up if you went into Hobby Lobby and they wrote contraception on your bag giving you, you know, your crafting supplies. Or if you went to Domino's and they started talking to you about abortion. Or if you went to Papa John's Pizza and they started talking to you about Obamacare. And that gets to the larger point. What is the role of corporations in these things? You got all excited because it was gangster for Howard Schultz to do it on race because that's your pet issue. But not every CEO is going to agree with you. And so should we be empowering corporations? We already have, you know, as far as Citizens United, corporations are considered humans as far as political contributions and and speech. As far as the Hobby Lobby decision, corporations are given religious rights. How much more do you imbue corporations with a sort of a human role in our our day-to-day lives? Should they be given that power and be encouraged to use that power for good, which Hobby Lobby would say they are doing? Or should they not be engaged in that kind of activity? I don't think he was wrong to try to engage people to talk about race. So Hobby Lobby wouldn't be wrong if you went in there to buy some crafting supplies and they told you about your contraception. They would be totally... I just wouldn't. It would be up to me to either listen to engage or not engage. I think, you know... I mean, I don't. Nah, I, I you're dodging the issue. You would not. I'm not if you, dodging the if, issue. If if, if you went into Hobby Lobby and they lectured you about your contraception, you would come in here the next week talking about, can you believe these fuckers at Hobby Lobby did this? I would just probably make fun of it. But right. I'm, a, you know, like I just would, you know, m- take the opportunity to make a joke to lampoon it. But I mean, I just think it's very ballsy, and I think he just had a human reaction from what he says, from what I've read, to what was going on. All last year. Right. And if he did it, that would fine. And I, and I that read that the, the meetings were great. I heard that the meetings were very emotional. They what, have 40%. What Starbucks does is its internal corporate policy is its own business. Yes. And I think they should have so kept it that way. They Maybe should have kept sponsored, it that way. you know, other conversations like, for example, our conversation. If, if Starbucks <laughs> would like to sponsor our conversation, have... we will take their money. Exactly. But we, will ra- we will race together with them. The Harvard Business Review wrote this piece. It made the case that this was better corporate engagement than most because we could see it. It wasn't a secret super PAC. It wasn't lobbying. It wasn't trying to buy a political candidate or create laws that reduce the regulation on your industry. This was flagrantly, openly, and largely anti-profitable move on their part. So to your point, Tana... I would not be happy going into Chick-fil-A and having them put on my receipt, you know, gay people destroy marriage, right? Like, right. I'm like, just give me the chicken and let me get out of here. <laughs> right. And and I think that's, you know, a lot of the obvious reaction to the Starbucks thing. Like, just give me my caffeine and let me get out of here. That said, I think there is a space for corporate engagement beyond just going with their own business as usual. The first is being good to your customers, to your partners, to your employees, and making sure you're not being hypocritical. But that's just just obeying the law. That's just providing quality goods and services and obeying basic labor laws. I think it's beyond obeying the law because the law has pretty low standard for a lot of this stuff. There's a way to be actively engaged as a company that falls short of sort of evil secret behind-the-scenes lobbying or awkward, ham-fisted, forced public discourse. And you see, you know, whether it's what Tom's does where one pair of shoes goes to a person who has no shoes and the pair you buy, Warby Parker, like that sort of buy one, give one, whether it's your investment practices and where you put your money and the pension you know, of your employees and how that gets, how your money gets managed, whether you divest from fossil fuels, for example, and things like that. I think companies do have an opportunity, and I wouldn't say an obligation, but they have an opportunity to be better than mere like profit centers and employment centers in the world because of the power they already will. We're not granting them Anything. They already have this power, how but, they choose. But, to but and the good thing, at least it wasn't know. undercover boss. 
right? Where, you know, corp- corporate honchos yeah. get to play God and kind of like, you know, throw a couple dollars here and there to employees that kind of, you know, debase themselves in public for millions of viewers to see, to sell product, basically. So, I mean, this didn't feel like that. This felt like something different, even though the execution was... I don't know. It was not. Yeah, and I'm just trying to think of what else they could have done. They could have done nothing. They They could pay. They could have taken all the money that they invested in this, and they could have uh, funded scholarships to colleges. They could pay everyone fifty cents more an hour. They could do a lot of things that would just generally make life better. Paying people more money isn't gonna isn't gonna make them get along better. The way you're splitting their options, like that, Tanner saying they could have even the, the college scholarship. Like we've picked two incendiary kind of topics or three like we threw an abortion example out there a gay marriage example and a racial conversation example all of which they're very polarizing college scholarships is a cheap one right it's like not super polarizing but to somebody it is and it gets to education reform it gets to vouchers it gets to well how come they get a scholarship and these other kids don't why does college cost so much so everything is controversial well and everything civic is controversial I don't know that there is a, a blanket rule to not do anything. Again, that's not right. But we, we have a system where, you know, colleges now go and, you know, beg for money from corporations to sponsor this, sponsor that. Meanwhile, why not just tax corporations and have strongly funded public universities with low in-state tuition? Again, putting these responsibilities yeah. on the corporation rather than on us as citizens and on our public institutions is generally a bad idea. And this Starbucks thing grew out of that philosophy, that it is the corporation's well, responsibility yeah, yeah. to I get involved I, in these things. I, here's what I like about what you're saying, Tanner, because I, right. I think I agree with you and I disagree. There's been a privatization of exactly. a lot of public space, whether right, it's yeah. privatization of education or of prisons, mm-hmm. and now the privatization of like civic engagement and right. looking to our business leaders to solve race problems or, you know, marriage equality challenges or the definition of conception and life may be asking a bit much from people who are designed to maximize profits uh, for their shareholders. So I'll I'll give you a point. We don't have points in this show, but I'll give you a point for that. Maybe we shouldn't privatize the conversation on race. Maybe we should just run it, the three of us. We should be in charge of it. Yeah, even though though I wouldn't compare (laughs) race to talking about abortion and all the other stuff. I don't I think he was just I think it was well intended They'll poorly execute it. Hobby Lobby is very well intended. They think they are looking out for the interests of women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't all men? Exactly. Not all men. <laughs> all men. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Sweeping statements. Broad strokes. So why don't we go to what you are going to share with us, Raquel, okay. uh, for our next story? So uh, This American Life recently aired an excellent episode called Three Miles, or episode 550, produced by Hannah Joffe Walt that followed two teachers that had an exchange program about 10 years ago where they brought together poor kids from University Heights High School in the South Bronx and super rich kids from Fieldston in a really swanky area in Riverdale. They have like an 18-acre sprawling campus. I've been to it. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And, you know, University Heights is in a poor neighborhood and one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country. So first they started as pen pals. And then finally, the University Heights kids, the public school kids, went to a Fieldston and some of them had really, really, really negative reactions. And one girl in particular named Melanie has such a bad reaction that everybody that the producer tracked down remembered it because it was so, so messed up. And she kept on wondering as she was interviewing different people, whatever happened to this girl? And it just took her like forever to track her down. When she finally does, 
the girl seemed like she was really embarrassed to talk, like she really had to think about it. But she did track her down. And it made me think about exposing students and the pros and cons about it. And I wanted to read a quote about why from the story. Hannah Joffe-Walt says, A lot of Fieldson students do go on to be politicians and run Walt Disney, the New York Times, and host evening news programs and design major American cities. And part of the point of programs like these that try to bridge a divide, seeing as private school kids will likely go on to be important influential people, maybe write education policy or finance new businesses, it's good for them to know not everybody's life looks like theirs. And then she went on to say, like, what do public school kids get out of it? You know, exposure yeah. can be good, but it can also suck. So that kind of, like, made me think about your experience, Baratunde. You went to Sidwell Friends, right? In D.C. Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? And how different was that from your elementary school experience? It, it was really different. And I listened to this episode as well. And it touched a lot of nerves. And I had some, like, post-traumatic stress-type flashbacks um, to to combat in the transition from a public school to a private school, from a relatively poor neighborhood to a relatively wealthy neighborhood just within the smaller city of D.C. And so, you know, my experience wasn't as dramatic as a lot of what played out in the This American Life story, one piece of which was someone who just almost couldn't handle. Great things were expected of. They got hyper-exposed to wealth and they were kind of depressed about it and could not live up to their own dreams. Another person who kind of went through this college prep program went off to Wheaton College and failed out. And so a lot of the story is like what happens to the poor kid who gets exposed to the rich environment, follows the path that everyone says they should and can't make it. I think my own story, I got lucky. <laughs> I had a, a great mother who also got lucky in the timing. And I think the age at which I was exposed made a big difference. I switched to private school in seventh grade and wasn't fully formed and still had flexible ideas, uh, I think, about what was possible and what was right and what I could become without having it so hammered away that, like, I absolutely couldn't make it in this world or, or I wasn't for this world. So much of these kids' stories came out, like, the sense of not belonging and their inability to wear the entitlement of the private school kid who assumes the world is their oyster and who assumes they're going to run Disney and, and write for the New York Times. I think I came in, fortunately, coincidentally, and luckily enough, at a certain age where, like, I could actually adopt some of that level of, like, can-do entitlement, and it didn't totally shock my cultural system and make me feel like an outsider or like some kind of imposter. And there was a big level of like, imposter syndrome that came across in, in this story. Did you have any problems like that when you were growing up? You went to school where? I went to school in the uh, suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama. Our official school flag was Confederate flag. Our official school mascot was Confederate rebel. And 99.9% of the minority students at our school were bussed in. And what was interesting about the dynamic at our high school was most of the kids were bussed in from this very, very poor area called Oxmoor. Like it was you know, the worst kind of rural poverty you can imagine. A lot of them didn't even have running water. And our neighborhood was, you know, we weren't the old money suburb, we were the new money suburbs. And um, so most of the kids had decent lifestyle. The bus kids who came in from this area hated it. They engaged with us not at all. And they mostly just stayed in the general studies track and then went home, and most of them didn't really go on to great things. The handful of other black students in our school, because the other type of affirmative action in the system was that they had to hire X number of black teachers for the school, and if you were a teacher, your children got to go to the school. So mm. these were black children whose parents had gone 
to college. Maybe it was an HBCU and they've gotten just a, you know, a teaching certificate. So they, it wasn't like, you know, parents have gone to Harvard, but their parents at least had enough education that they had moved one rung up the ladder and these kids were coming in at a slightly different level. Those kids adapted very well, were very successful, generally speaking. Um, not that it was easy for them, but they did much better. So yeah. that was the experience at my high school. But, you know, what's interesting to me looking at what happened to these kids in this story where they take them from the bottom rung of the ladder and take them to the top rung of the ladder and they freak out and it's difficult and they can't handle it. A lot of them. Uh, one of the statistics they said in the story was that I believe that poor children who go to college, only one in five actually makes it through in six years. You know, people talk a lot about affirmative action for white people, which to me is one of the dumbest phrases that's ever been coined because white people don't have affirmative action. We've had, you know, the toolkit and the ability to build generational wealth over the course of the history of this country and not just a golden ticket that says, here, you get to go to Sidwell Friends and jump into the deep end of the pool. What my family had, it's complete opposite of what Baratunde had, my, my great-grandparents were actually sharecroppers going way back, and they were dirt poor. No one ever took my grandfather to any place like Fieldston. But what he did get was, hey, here's a factory job. And he got that, and he got to hold on to that for, you know, 40 years. And then when my father and mother came along, it was, hey, here's how you can get partial scholarship to of in-state tuition to a public college. And they got that, and they got, you know, mid-level white-collar careers. And then me and my brother came along, and we were we could kind of see the Fieldston kids off in the distance, but we weren't really a part of that. You know, we were driving around in my mom's 10-year-old minivan, and the other kids had BMWs, but they were kind of over there. And we could always see one or two rungs ahead of us. And when you see just the rung ahead of you, it's like, well, it's easy. You can but, just climb to that rung. But you know what? A lot of these kids come from, you know, the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. Where I also am Dominican. I'm Dominican-Yorkian, born in New York City by way of Dominican parents. And a lot of times you're dealing with a whole other set of issues, which is, you know, cultural issues, right. language barriers, and also phenotypically, characteristically, a child of, let's say, Russian Jewish immigrants eventually becomes white and therefore has more access. And children of other immigrant groups become other or non-white or black or what have you, and then automatically are foisted in a position where they're kind of oppressed. And then it's like how, how you learn in school, right? So something that she said really, really struck a chord to me. Uh, Melanie says about that day in Fieldston, by the way, I know I looked at it and I said, well, I know that we're only being taught to flip burgers in Burger King or McDonald's or to hold doors for students like them that will probably live in those buildings on Madison Avenue and will be wearing the uniform servicing these people. And it really reminded me of, like, I was never really into school. Like, I know, Baratunde, you excelled and you really loved being in school. I hated every moment of it. I was very disengaged. Mm. And I went to two really shitty schools in uh, the Bronx. I went to a parochial high school and then I went to a public basically jail that was in walking distance of Fieldston that actually used yeah. to sometimes cut school and take a walk and get lost in Fieldston. And it's funny too, because I would play tennis because I was a tennis player also. And I would find myself at Fieldston and I never really wanted to go there or be accepted. I was never looking for acceptance. I was just looking for respect. This is the reason why I think that ethnic studies is very important to push and a more balanced view of American history because when you see yourself not reflected in your community and in history, you kind of check out. I can kind of see why she was feeling that way and why, you know, her life turned out well so far because she's still young the way it did. I think there's something that connects, at least what I'm hearing from both of you, because this, this American Life story was so dramatic. I mean, it found these really extreme cases, both of this woman, Melanie, and, and also the guy who didn't finish college, who represented Jonathan Gonzalez. Jonathan Gonzalez. But this idea, like this internalized 
sense of not belonging and of being an imposter and of, or of not being able to amount to much. Like, I'm destined to serve these people and flip their burgers and hold doors for them. Or what am I doing in college? And Tanner, to your point, it's like, it was incremental. It was so incremental, it was invisible. We didn't know it was happening. It's like, it's the difference between, you know, walking into a pool that has this gradual slope versus jumping into like a 30-foot, you know, NASA training pool that goes into like the depths and there's monsters and stuff down there. You're like, wait a minute, what is water? So your your story of like, oh, I had the factory job and then, you know, our car was this and we got acclimated. Right. Over generations right. Exactly. to not see it as foreign, to slowly accept. Right. And to you Raquel's know, point, it was only a, a class barrier. It was not a racial barrier. Yeah. And you know, you have these kids. I mean, Jonathan Gonzalez also was a foster kid and he was told that at home, and I would say home in quotes, he was told he was yeah. a shit. He was going to be a janitor. He wasn't anything. He was going to amount to nothing. He was never going to make it. So you have toxic stress, something that's been coming up a lot um, lately and how, yeah. you know, different children and young people process it. And you're seeing it in our high dropout rates and our disengagement and whatnot. And then you have, you know, Raquel Hardy, who was also part of the story, who mm-hmm. got a full ride to Bard and kind of had like a, you know, it was kind of the success story out of the three. But if you want to listen to it, and right. I really suggest that you do, check out This American Life. Mm-hmm. Really, really excellent story. And can I just say one more yeah, thing? Sure. On my way here, I ran into two girls that have very, very, very similar stories to yeah. uh, Jonathan and actually Melanie. One's mother just broke out on her when she was very young, and the and she kind of raised herself. And the other one is just, you know, from an immigrant uh, family. She's first generation. They're both going to be the first kids to go to college. And they were really excited because they were on their way to visit a school uh, because of Posse, the Posse mm-hmm. scholarship, which they also mentioned in the segment. And they both told me, you know, I really love school. The only thing I don't like is the way we've been learning history. You know, I think my teacher, who's not from here, she's like a white lady from like in the Midwest, she, she kind of like puts me down. She puts us down. And I just wish there was a way that that could change. And then we're talking about 2015. This Melanie story happened 10 years ago. Before that, I was in school. It's like things are not changing. Well, here's, here's a question that I think is the question that the show poses, like this posse scholarship that uh, Melanie applied for and that this Jonathan kid got, where you, gave a, you, know, you take a kid from this disadvantaged background, you give him a free ride to someplace like Middlebury or, or, or Harvard or wherever else. Are we served by taking these kids and throwing them in the deep end of the pool, per Baritone's you know, analogy? Should we take $150,000 and send one kid to a place where they might not make it? Or should we take that money and send five kids to City College? or No, you just have Binghamton? to teach them differently. You have to teach them that they, too, are part of the society and they, too, can be healthy contributors. They have to see themselves reflected in society. And I think that begins with education, also with home, you know, with education at home. And it just starts from the beginning, from very young. You feel like you're not shit. It's going to be harder for you to get out of the shit. To that point, what do we do, though? So saying that it begins at home or saying that, you know, right. education look at, look at, will help. Well, look at your mom, Baratunde. Your mom instilled in you a sense of pride, right? Yeah, but but what I'm getting at, I guess, the, right. how do we create more Baratunde's moms? Like, that, she's also an anomaly. Like, she was the weird black lady who loved camping. And look, was a computer programmer and ate tofu and grew our own food. And how do we create a system that creates more of those so that I'm not like the the one in five that makes it through, that it's, I'm the four in five that makes it through? Well, that's to my point of, of, of my experience is that it's, it's generational and it's gradual. And if you do it otherwise, it can be incredibly successful like Baratunde or in four out of five cases, it can incredibly backfire. But what, and one of the things that was extra tragic, I think, about the This American Life thing is that 
they found an example of like a posse failure that goes against what posse was designed to do, which right. is create a team. It's mm-hmm. not throwing one kid into the deep end. It's throwing like 10 kids in with academic and like psychological support because they recognize that there is a cultural shock that happens when you just would drop folks off. This is not a fun conclusion to come to. This is all just going to take way longer than we've budgeted for. Yeah. And this we have like massive cost overruns in fixing America. And when you look at how long it's taken to set up these feelings of inferiority and not belonging and not having a sense of place in your own nation or just the academic preparation that it takes to succeed at a at a decent liberal arts college and the presumption of study groups and just all that stuff that's not happening right now for a five-year-old in the hood. Like, right. That's just not normal. Right. There's no field hockey courts. There's no tennis courts. So it's, it's a little depressing to think about how much work we have to do, but it doesn't serve us to pretend that we don't have to do it. Exactly. And, and, and so... It took a white guy with all the advantages 80 years. So there you go. Yeah. And, and, it took, and in my case, you know, it took a lot going right at, at the margin. You know, my mother, you know, Raquel, you, know, you said this, and we've spent probably too much time on this topic, but this is kind of the heart of, I think, who we are as, an, as individuals as right. well, not just this story that we decided to talk about. What helped me so much that I can recognize, at least, and I don't always see myself very clearly, is that I never had the doubts that these students have talked about in that This American Life story. I was raised to believe I belonged, even though I wasn't in a sea of white people, probably because I wasn't and because there was like a cultural pride and because my mom didn't have a college degree, but she did have some college and she had a job that allowed her to pay for things for me and my sister. And my sister went off to college and she was nine years ahead of me. So in the small culture of our house, it was pretty normal and it was expected. So I didn't suffer that shock. And I certainly didn't think, oh, these white kids deserve something that I don't or these rich kids deserve something that I don't, but I also can see now with that distance that that was quite the exception. That is the exception, yeah. And getting to Sidwell and getting to Harvard, we used to, as black students, we just knew that there was a rule. Like, certain percentages of us are not going to be here in four years and are not going to graduate with us. They're going to academically bomb out. They're going to be having some discipline problems and and engage in some kind of honor code dispute or something that's going to lead to, like, a sacrifice. Yeah, and it's yeah. like serving in war. You're like some of your brothers and sisters aren't coming back with you, and that's that's the sad truth, the downside of a lot of these programs that we just have to budget more time and intervene way way earlier. I'd hate to end it on a sour note, but you know some kids will be motivated by exposure, some won't, and some will be indifferent. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll have time to come back and talk about this, revisit this time and time again, and I hope that things change for the better. Well, hope is part of the plan. In our in our last story that we're going to deal with today, it's about the new black. And we had a couple of, of articles very recently, one by Stereo Williams, who gets my nomination for best name of journalist or writer at the Daily Beast, uh, who wrote about Pharrell and Common and this this new black. Another is over at the Michigan Chronicle by Covey uh, Biacolo, talking again about what is the new black. So Common was recently on The Daily Show promoting his new film, and he talked about, you know, what we as black people need to be doing. And I'm going to share a, a bit of that right now. Hey, we all know it's been some bad history in our country. We know that racism exists. I'm like saying, hey, y'all, I'm extending a hand and I'm hoping a lot. Of, I think a lot of the generations in different cultures are saying, hey, 
we want to get past this. Mm-hmm. If, if we've been bullied, we've been beat down, but we don't want it anymore. And we're not extending a fist. We're not saying, hey, you did this, you did us wrong. It's more like, hey, I'm extending my hand in love. Let's forget about the past as much as we can. Right. And let's move from where we are now. How can we help each other? Can you, can you try to help us? Because we're going to help ourselves, too. That's, what, that's really where we are right now. How, how, and I think that's, that's exactly And here's a bit more of Common on The Daily Show. Like, me as a black man, I'm not sitting there like, hey, white people, y'all did us wrong. And, I mean, we know that that existed. I don't even have to keep bringing that up. It's like being in a relationship and continuing to bring up the person's issues. Now I'm saying, hey, I love you. Let's move past this. Uh, come on, baby, let's get past this. You know? Common's not alone. Two people of significant note have both, coincidentally, I hope, in conversations with Oprah Winfrey, said some similar, even even more flagrant things. Pharrell said the new black doesn't blame other races for our issues. And, of course, Raven Simone, who can't not say things in public that cause people to hate her, uh, said that she didn't really consider herself African-American. She's American. She's human, not gay, and sort of this denial of labels by other people. So there's a notion going on that, the exceptionalism, actually to connect back to our Three Miles story, yeah. of the black celebrity doesn't allow them to see the condition anymore and that there's something in our minds that would allow us to move ahead more than some external policy changes to remove the boot of systemic racism uh, that still suppresses so so many people. And that by being an exception, you basically can no longer see the reality of the situation. And so maybe should shut the hell up and, and stop prescribing uh, solutions that involve essentially picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, so as we've done before, I, I got my own thoughts, but uh, I'll toss to uh, to you, Raquel. What do you think about the, the new black and this something, idea of celebrity success? You know, something happens when you win hardware. I don't know what it is. The Oscar, the Grammy, if you blow up, you go pop. <laughs> something happens to you where you no longer see color and you or you do see color you just put blinders on and the blinders are, are like green they're tinted in green it's all about money I don't I mean mm-hmm. this happens time and time again a Kanye West talks about not paying attention to race Raven Simone I mean while I don't agree with what she says but I do believe that she is allowed to label herself the way she wants if she wants to be called yeah. American I mean I know people that don't like to be called African American like to be called black American for instance and then, you know, identify them as such because they ask, they mm-hmm. don't want to be identified. You know, so if she wants to be an American, fine, whatever. You know, she's growing up in the public eye. But these other guys are a little older and they should have a little bit more. I mean, it, it was just a, a bummer, this whole need to be accepted. It's like, it's like, it's like begging for white acceptance. Mm. You know, and it what also about- reminds <laughs> me, it reminds me of like when LL Cool J said, you know, if you don't judge my gold chains, I'll forget the iron chains. You know, in that Brad yeah, Paisley song, that false equivalence. Yeah. yeah, it's I don't I don't I mean for me it's like you know you don't have to love me I don't give a shit don't fucking love me at all just respect me we should start seeing each other as human beings. It's that that's more the, the uh, message. We, we've used the term white acceptance a couple of times. What does the white member of our team have to say about this uh, concept of the new black and? Success. Well, I mean, it's certainly one thing to be critical of, you know, someone who's toadying for white acceptance and is is very craven and, and, you know, uh, sort of self-debasing about it. But at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, to get ahead in America, you you do need to cross certain racial lines and you do have to be accepted in certain quarters and you do have to, unfortunately, make adjustments in order to do that. So I don't think you can necessarily cast everything as, you know, some, some sort of horrible toadying for white acceptance. Uh, the, what? <laughs> Dismissing 
like all the history, all that history is well, not. I mean, they, they're, well, here's, they're not here's just the thing. Asking, here's the, a first of all, you shouldn't be asking Raven Simone and Pharrell and Common to be the most you know intelligent, articulate people on the planet. What they're saying is stupid, and they're not saying it well. But the kernel of what they're saying is that you know I want to define myself as someone who has agency who doesn't necessarily only identify myself by horrible shit that white people have done and continue to do. And if you take that kernel from what they're saying and ignore sort of this really phenomenally stupid way they're saying it, that in and of itself is not a terrible thing. No, but listen to me. So part of it also is that, you know, the black American experience has always been incredibly varied, right? And you have people in Louisiana, you have people in New York, you have all these different experiences. The one thing that unified it was a shared history of oppression. And that's what sort of galvanized this sort of common, you know, black identity and the idea that there's a unified black America. That's over. That's done. And whether or not you like what Pharrell and Common and Raven Simone are saying, there's only going to be more of it because those lines are only going to be more fractured and there's just more and more of this coming. But you know, they're not stupid. Like Common, for example, his mother was a teacher and I believe that Kanye West's parents were maybe at least one of the more. I'm not saying they're not intelligent. I'm I just mean, saying that they're not exactly necessarily. You know, they, the, they're not. They're not expressing themselves very well because they don't. But have they a believe. Beat I mean, if they're well, they believe what they're saying. They're articulate. They express themselves well in song. They're well traveled. They experience the world around them. They've had exposure. They're not 20 years old, 30 years old, even. They're older. Yeah. You know, they're they're just as smart as you know anybody anybody else. When I listen to somebody like Pharrell or Common, who I've known for many years, I believe what they're saying. I believe that they believe what they're saying. Um, mm-hmm. It's just sad that once you get, you know, past a certain economic or I guess when you go pop, that you start to come off like you're begging to be accepted by mainstream society. It just It just doesn't feel But the whole, right. if, you, if, you, if you watch the whole thing of Pharrell explaining to himself, he's not, he's on, he's not talking to a wide audience. He's just expressing an idea. I draw a distinction between Common, who's, I think, his, like, Golden Globe acceptance speech for Glory uh, in Selma was beautiful. He's, he's trying to universalize struggle to some degree, and he's trying, using the Edmund Pettus Bridge to, to connect, you know, kids in France and kids in the South and Black Lives Matter movements right. uh, in the same way that civil rights leaders have always tried to do, in the same way that the movement itself was very expansive and inclusive and has clearly benefited more than just black people's right to vote and not get beat down by the cops. Um, so that's that's a really beautiful sentiment. He's coming from a place of like sharing love. That's a little different, though it's still connected to the particular Pharrell quote that kind of bugged me, which is like the new black doesn't blame other races for our issues. And this this tendency is almost like when Obama, you know, speaks to black audiences, he's like, it's very condescending and it's very like you got to do better and you got to stop playing those video games. Or when Bill Cosby says you got to pull your pants up. So I'm not saying that all these are the same, but they feel like they're a similar thread and at least the same part of the fabric of how this stuff gets discussed. Even terms new black, like what's wrong with old black? Like old black got us this far. You know, old black created jazz and helped create hip hop and exactly. like did the, you know, the straightening comb and peanuts and like all this stuff. So this, this attempt at break, with history, I don't think in the in the grand sweep of things is very healthy because it says, well, there was something wrong with black and I'm going to fix it. And the way I'm going to fix it is to kind of ignore struggle and oppression and, and essentially pretend that effort and genius and brilliance alone or, or heavily, if not alone, responsible for where I am today. 
And therefore, the solution for the rest of y'all is just be great. Just be great like me. And that's not practical advice. Just like it's not practical to throw a bunch of poor kids into wealthy schools and just assume that they're going to feel like they belong and can assume that they, they can do well. So, first of all, to, to uh, totally agree with everyone who's saying, Pharrell and Common said some really stupid and, you know, ham-fisted things. But if, if you want to look at what they're trying to say and not saying very well, is that they want to define themselves by what they can do and not by what they've been told they can't do. It is a natural human thing to want to define yourself as having agency. And they're saying it in a way that discounts all of the structural oppression that still exists. The structural oppression still exists, but at the same time, I'm going to do my best to define myself by what I can do to, to move myself along. So that's number one. Number two, yes, it's true that their wealth and their success has created this disconnect and removed from you know people's everyday experiences, and that's part of why people are angry at what they're saying. What Pharrell said and what Common said, you, the you know what happened when the news cycle picked these things up is they picked up the most ham-fisted, ill-conceived things that they said out of the quote and blew it up. And obviously they said some bad things. But when I saw another clip of Pharrell when they went back to him, they asked him to explain himself. And he he explained it in much better terms where he said, basically, just, you know, this is just about me having a positive conception of myself and what I've been able to achieve. And it's not really meant to be all these things that everyone else said it is. And so as we always do in our 24 hour news cycle, we jumped on these things and we pulled the dumbest things out that were said and trumped them up into is this a trend about black people hating themselves or black people denying what's true about, you know, the reality of this country uh, because they made a few misstatements while extemporizing during interviews. But the reality is that Common was talking about reaching out across the lines with love. Pharrell was talking about having a real self-empowered positive conception of himself. And they wrapped it up in a lot of stupid extemporizing. I'm going to close off this story about the new black because uh, the new black is exhausting. I'm going to return to the old black <laughs> where I understand things. And it's a bit more uh, comfortable. And just help us get uh, to our last part of the show where we share some tips and recommendations. Uh, we know you just listen to this over and over again. But if you want to have some other uh, interesting stuff about race, uh, this is what we call Yo, Check This Out. So, Raquel, what do you want people to check out that is not our podcast. I am checking out American Crime on ABC. And I want to give a shout out to Elvis Nolasco, who's in American Crime and is a fellow Dominiorkian. So um, I'm loving it. It's really resisting looking at all the issues in America um, from a binary lens, and I love it. Mm. And I'm also really excited for next week. If you're in New York City, you may want to pick up some tickets to go check out the finals of the New York Daily News Golden Glove Finals. And I'm especially checking for the women's bouts. And I want to give love taps and a special shout-out to Adrian Ford, Alexis Morant, and Nisa Rodriguez, who are all in the finals. Women's boxing is just amazing. It's on the come-up. Oh, man, that's a laundry list. Glad a lot to do, y'all. Get to New York and do all those things that Raquel said. Tana, what do you think people need to be checking out? My recommendation, as is uh, with most of my pop culture references, a few weeks old <laughs> because I have a young child and I don't get to things. Zadie Smith's profile of Key and Peele in The New Yorker. It was from a few weeks ago, but it's a fascinating article. And it really looks at, speaking of the new black, these two uh, mixed race guys who by having to adapt to lots of different all-white environments and, you know, go through different conceptions of themselves and who they are, learn to be these different characters, and that informs the different characters they play in their sketch show, and that's what makes it a really interesting commentary on race in America. So watch Key and Peele, read the uh, article, and it's great. 
Boom. Yeah, watch Cam Peel. I double down on that one. Mine, I'll, I'll give two short ones. One is a Kickstarter campaign by Damani Baker. He's a documentary filmmaker, did the beautiful documentary about Bill Withers called Still Bill. He's doing a campaign for another documentary called The House on Coco Road. It's this beautiful, almost like biography and look back at the women in his life, his great-grandmother, his grandmother and his mother in particular, who was like a teaching assistant to Angela Davis uh, way back in the day and moved their family to Granada to be a part of the People's Revolution there in the early 80s. The House on Coco Road, you can find it at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Coco Road, C-O-C-O-R-O-A-D. Really dope. And then uh, another visual thing, Anand Girdardas' TED Talk. It's up at TED.com. He'll be the brown man on their homepage by the time you click on this with the huge, beautiful hair. He talks uh, about what it means to be a true American and who can claim this dream and how the country is really drifting apart. It's the most successful and least successful country in the Western world uh, in terms of class success, something we've talked about a lot in this show. So head on over to TED.com, look for the brown man with the big hair talking about two Americas. Uh, That's my recommendation for stuff to check out. Boop. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. Our producer today is Laura Mayer, our engineer, Theo Mondel. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of the Panoply Network. And you can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Now, we're going to be continuing to talk about this, and you can engage with us on our website, showaboutrace.com. On social media, facebook.com and twitter.com slash showaboutrace. And share what you're thinking. We want to incorporate your part of the conversation into our conversation about the conversation about race. If you're old school, just email us directly, aboutrace at gmail.com. For Raquel Cepeda and Tanner Colby, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and we won't stop until racism is over.